The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Our American Stories, and as you know, we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, particularly history. And all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. For the last century, Americans have honored our country by singing words that were written by a tone-deaf lawyer to the tune of a British social club song. Francis Frank Scott Key was not someone you would have picked to write our national anthem. Here's Mark Liebson, author of a biography on Key, What So Proudly We Hailed, to tell us more about the unlikely events that brought us our national anthem. And here's the story of how Francis Scott Key, the big Washington, D.C. lawyer, the pious patriot, wrote the words that will become our national anthem, what will become known as the Star-Spangled Banner. This story starts during the War of 1812 with the Battle of Bladensburg, Bladensburg, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. This is one of the most embarrassing defeats in U.S. military history. Uh, The British, who, you know, changed the complexion of the war of 1812 after defeating Napoleon in 1814 and sent thousands of crack troops over here. They were raiding up the Chesapeake Bay. They came to the outskirts of Washington, and they overran just a pathetic 
group of last-minute thrown-together militiamen on August 26th overran them and came into Washington, and most people remember that they burned the White House, Treasury Department, and other public buildings. An embarrassing defeat, not so much in the terms of how many were killed. There weren't many because the, the British just moved right through. So after the Battle of Bladensburg, the British left Washington. They went back to the Chesapeake Bay, and they got on their ships, and they headed toward Baltimore, which people didn't know at the time. But when they did, they took prisoner a man named Dr. William Beans, who owned a, a farm in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, which was on the way out east of Washington, D.C. And he made the mistake of taking a couple of British stragglers prisoner. When the Brits saw them, they were not very happy about it. And so they took Dr. Beans prisoner. He was an older man. He was in his 60s. They took him away and they headed up to Baltimore, which was, like I said, not known at the time. Prisoner releases and prisoner exchanges were common during the War of 1812. It happened all the time. And the man who was chosen to argue for Dr. Bean's release was a man named Francis Scott Key. He was a big lawyer in Washington, D.C. He was born and raised in Maryland in what was then Frederick County, north of the city of Frederick. He went to law school. He read the law at St. John's College in Annapolis, and he had a thriving practice in Washington, D.C. He was known for his eloquence in front of juries. He could talk people into things. He was asked by the family of Dr. Beans to arrange his release. He was a member of a prominent family in Washington, Francis Scott Key was. By the way, they called him Frank, so everybody called him Frank, so we'll call him Frank for the rest of the story. Frank Key uh, was asked by the Beans family to arrange the release. He got permission from President Madison, and on September 2nd, 1814, he got on his horse and he rode up to Baltimore. When he got to Baltimore, he met up with a U.S. Army lieutenant colonel named John Skinner. Now, Skinner's job was to arrange uh, prisoner releases and prisoner exchanges. So Key met up with Skinner. They got on a, a small American ship, and they went out and looked for the British fleet, and they found them. And they were welcomed on board the flagship of the British fleet. They made their case. They did it over lunch or dinner, wine was consumed, and Frank used his powers of persuasion and the British agreed. One of the things that helped his cause was that before they left Washington, before he left Washington, he picked up a packet of letters, letters from British prisoners who had been taken prisoner during the Battle of Bladensburg and the sacking of Washington, D.C., and they testified to the fact that they were being treated very well by the Americans. So that convinced the Brits, and they said, we'll let Dr. Beans go. However, we have some work to do. We are going to destroy the city of Baltimore. Now, the British purposely did not burn any private homes in Washington. They only went after public buildings, but not so in Baltimore. Why did they want to destroy Baltimore? Well, you know, we may forget, but as in the case of most of our wars, before we got into the War of 1812, it was a very controversial thing. Basically, it was a north-south split, with Southerners generally in favor of going to war and Northerners against it. Francis Scott Key was born in the North and grew up there, but he, you really have to categorize him as a Southerner in outlook. You know, Maryland was a state in which slavery was legal. His family owned slaves. He grew up on a plantation, and he did have a conservative Southern outlook. But he was against the Americans going into the War of 1812. But 
Key's views changed on the war when the Brits started invading up the Chesapeake Bay. He actually joined a Georgetown militia unit. He went out to the Chesapeake, served in a, as a quartermaster officer. He did not serve very long, just about a week, and he got tired of the war, so he quit and he went back to Georgetown. Uh, but he did support the war after that. And why were the Brits so intent on destroying Baltimore? Well, the country was divided. But not in Baltimore. The people of Baltimore were very war hawkish in the War of 1812. And, you know, the U.S. was not prepared militarily to go into this war, especially with the Navy. So the call went out to private ship owners if they wanted to use their, uh, let their ships be used in the cause against the Brits. They could. And Baltimore led the country in lending private ships. They were called Baltimore Clippers. They were very fast ships, and they gave the Brits a lot of trouble on the seas, and the Brits did not like this. One British newspaper writer referred to Baltimore as a nest of thieves. So, Francis got key, Dr. Beans and Skinner were taken back to their American ship. Sometimes you hear that they were held prisoner during the Battle of Baltimore. That was not quite true. They couldn't leave, but it wasn't like they were below decks, you know, on bread and water. They were on the deck, and they had a bird's-eye view of what became the largest sustained bombing in military history to that time. The Brits had 19 ships out there in Baltimore Harbor. Four of them were bomb ships. These were squat ships with giant 250-pound cannons firing away. On that night of December 13th, 14th, some 1,500 bombs, mortars, and rockets were fired onto the city of Baltimore. Rockets, you know, this was only the second time in the history of war that rockets were used. They were called Congreve rockets. They looked like what we know rockets look like, long and cylindrical with fins on the bottom, but they didn't have any guidance system. The rockets red glare and bombs were bursting in air, but they weren't aimed very well, and there was very, very um, well. There were no, there were no, there was no loss of life in Baltimore or at Fort McHenry, which fired back with plenty of cannon on its own. Although the people in Baltimore were terrified because the houses were shaking. I mean, that's how terrifying the bombardment was. Plus, there was a giant storm that night. A thunderstorm could have been a tornado, could have been a hurricane. We don't really know, but it was an amazing night of 1,500 bombs, rockets going off, thunder, lightning. And there also was a land component to the Battle of Baltimore, which we don't have to get into very much here, but just to know that the Brits tried under the cover of that bombing to attack, and they got pretty close to the city, but uh, their leading general was shot and killed off of his horse, and that sort of took the steam out of the land component. Plus, Baltimore was uh, fortified much better than Washington was. You know, uh, the people in Baltimore could see the fires of Washington burning on August 26th, so they were prepared. And we're listening to Mark Leapson tell an important chapter of American history, the War of 1812. Uh, the Revolutionary War was continuing. This was chapter two. And great storytelling by Mark Leapson on the life of Francis Scott Key. When we come back, more of Mark Leapson, his book, by the way, What So Proudly We Hailed, pick it up at Amazon or the usual suspects. When we come back, more of this remarkable American story, the story of our national anthem here on Our American Stories. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with our American stories and the story of our national anthem, which of course means telling the story of Francis Scott Key. Let's return to author Mark Leibson. 
It lasted 25 straight hours, but then in the middle of the night, at about three o'clock in the morning, everything stopped. Um, and Francis Scott Key and Beans and Skinner, who were pacing the deck, didn't know what happened. It was dark, it was foggy, rainy, and all they knew that was the battle was over. So they were pacing the deck and they waited until the dawn's early light and Key looked out of his glass and he could see that Fort McHenry had a flag flying over it, but you know, those flags were big, they were made of wool, it had rained all night, the flag was just hanging there. He couldn't tell who it, what it was. That flag was taken down, another flag was put up, there was a little bit of a breeze, and what did he see? He saw that our flag was still there. And this inspired him to write the words that would become the national anthem. You know, Francis Scott Key, Frank Key was a amateur poet. Um, he wasn't a good amateur poet, but his poetry was never meant to be shown beyond family and friends, which makes it even more ironic that the words that he wrote that day, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans know those words. The other thing that people might not know about uh, the Battle of Baltimore is that it was a turning point in the War of 1812. There were peace talks going on, but after the British slunk out of Baltimore, you know, Key realized when he saw the stars and stripes, our flag was still there, the British ships were gone. We had won, the peace talks continued, the Treaty of Ghent was signed in January of 1815. But Frank knew that Baltimore was saved. He had a letter in his pocket. Now, people also often say that he wrote the words on an envelope. Well, you know, technically, there were no envelopes back then. There were no envelopes. It wasn't technically, but letters themselves were the envelope. So, on the back of the letter, Frank scrawled a few verses. He and Skinner and Beans were released. He went back to Baltimore to a hotel and finished the four stanzas in the hotel. Now, what happened next, there are a lot of question marks about. We don't know the details. One reason is because even though Francis Scott Key lived for 30 more years, he spoke in public about it just once, did not mention the flag, and in all the letters that he wrote that have been uncovered, well, he mentions it only once in a letter to a friend in early October, and then he writes about that night, but he doesn't, again, mention writing the words that will become the national anthem. He talks about how brave the Americans were and how much he didn't like the British officers. What we know about what happened next was from a book that came out in the 1850s, and it was written by Key's brother-in-law, Roger Brooke Tawney, who was married to Frank Key's only sister. They were very close, the two families, and we know Roger Brooke Tawney as Chief Justice of the United States. He claims that this is what Frank told him what happened. Now, we can corroborate a lot of this with good primary source evidence, such as newspaper stories and some journals and diaries. So here's what we think happened after that. Somebody, could have been Tawny, could have been another one of Key's brother-in-laws, took what Frank wrote to a printer, because we do know that the next day those verses appeared on a broadsheet and they were plastered all over Baltimore. In fact, people, the defenders of Fort McHenry had them. The title was not the Star Spangled Banner. The title was Defense of Fort McHenry. And it said on there to be sung to the tune of 
Anacreon in Heaven. So what is Anacreon in Heaven? Anacreon in Heaven is a song that was the theme song of a British men's club called the Anacreontic Society. And these men would meet at taverns for dinner and for drinks. They would play their song, they would drink, they would discuss issues of the day. You often hear that the national anthem is sung to the tune of a British drinking song. Not quite true. It's not in the category of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. It was a little more high-minded than that, but it was the theme song of a kind of like a highfalutin men's book club that, that met in taverns. So there's a little bit of truth to that. Now, it was not uncommon for the words of songs to be put to tunes that people knew in the early 19th century. And that's exactly what happened with this one. And there were the people who know this stuff have counted something like 75, 50 to 75 songs that were put to Anacreon in heaven, including Adams and Liberty, which was a very popular patriotic song. We do know that in November of 1814, the song was printed on sheet music by Carr's Music Store in Baltimore, and the title was changed to The Star Spangled Banner. And, you know, uh, there's been controversy or just, uh, you know, historians have not agreed until relatively recently whether or not Francis Scott Key had in mind the fact that he was writing a song that night. Until relatively recently, historians believed that he wasn't because he wasn't a songwriter. He did write two hymns. You know, he was a very religious man. He almost went into the, the Episcopal priesthood. Uh, there's a letter that he wrote to the Bishop of Baltimore in which the bishop had asked him to join the priesthood. And Frank said he really wanted to, but, uh, you know, he had a family and he needed to feed his family. He didn't have the, he needed to make money as a lawyer. He, had, he wound up having 11 children. He was very active in his church. He was a lay minister, and he was very religious, as the words of the Star Spangled Banner indicate. So was he writing a song or not? Historians have changed their mind in the last four or five years, and the people who studied this now believe that he did have the song in mind, even though he wasn't a musical man. There are several reasons for this. One is that he wound up writing these words in rhyme and meter that fit exactly the song. And also that, you know, a few years earlier, there was a dinner given in Washington, D.C. for Stephen Decatur, the, the, the hero of the Tripolitan Wars. And a song was written for that and played that night by Francis Scott Key. There's an article in the newspaper in Georgetown that describes it, and it includes the words. And in those words are the words Star Spangled Banner. So putting that all together, historians do believe that Frank had in mind that he was writing a song even though he was just a poet, an amateur poet that night. The Star Spangled Banner did not become the national anthem until officially until 1931. We did, the United States did not have a national anthem until 1931, but it was one of the songs that was played at, at uh, patriotic gatherings such as Fourth of July within a few years after he wrote it. All throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century became more and more popular, but still it was only one of many songs that were played, including Yankee Doodle Dandy and others. And it wasn't until 1931 that Congress enacted a resolution that made the Star Spangled Banner the national anthem. It was controversial. There were hearings on Capitol Hill. People argued against it, saying it was hard to sing, which people still argue today. They said it was written by a Brit, the tune, and, you know, others said it glorified war. The proponents of it brought in a soprano to sing it on Capitol Hill during the hearings, and that sort of 
turned the tide and the Star Spangled Banner became the national anthem uh, in 1931, even though it was written in 1814. And one last thing, talking about a little bit of irony here. Uh, I told you that Francis Scott Key was not a good poet. And if you don't believe me, just read his poetry. You can read it online. But he also was, you know, unmusical. There, there was an article that I found when I was doing research for my book, What So Proudly We Hailed, the biography of Francis Scott Key, uh, that uh, had a, an, it was an interview with a Philadelphia newspaper man with one of Francis Scott Key's granddaughters. And, you know, they always would ask, you know, tell us about your grandfather, tell us about your father, well, you know, did he play an instrument, et cetera, et cetera. And the woman said, no, as a matter of fact, he was unmusical. And then she told an anecdote, which may or may not be true. She said that he was in Alabama in 1833. He was doing some legal work for President Andrew Jackson. And he was at some kind of gathering. And as would happen, a band was there and they played the Star Spangled Banner. And so Francis Scott Key was sitting with some people. The band was playing. And after it was over, the granddaughter told this newspaper reporter, my grandfather turned to the woman next to him and said, that was a beautiful air, a beautiful tune, what, what, what's the name of it? So, you know, it's probably apocryphal, but it does go to show that that man who wrote that song, the man who wrote the song that so many hundreds of millions of Americans know the first verse of, was a bad poet, and he most likely was tone deaf. And beautiful work on that piece by Robbie, as always. And a special thanks to Mark Leapson, author of What So Proudly We Hailed. A tone-deaf, bad poet ends up writing our national anthem. As always, our stories, our history stories, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. The story of the tone-deaf, bad poet who wrote the national anthem. Francis Scott Key's story. Frank Key's story. Here on Our American Stories. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.